So Deuteronomy chapter 5. We're just going to look at two verses specifically today. But as we're going to be looking at the background, the context, uh, it would be good for you to have this in front of you. So verses 6 and 7 is written. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. On August 5th, 1938, which the centennial of that is coming around way sooner than we may hope, um, the New York Post printed their headline backwards. Instead of reading left to right, it, the, the letters were completely flipped, and it read right to left. So in order to read it properly, you would have to hold it up to a mirror. Well, it wasn't a mistake. They did it on purpose. And the reversed headline read, Hail Wrong Way. Corrigan, to celebrate the return of airplane pilot Douglas Corrigan. Because just a day before, he had returned to New York City on a, on a steamship. And also on this ship was an airplane that he had flown uh, from New York City to Ireland. Now, according to his flight plan, he was going to, he, he had come from California, flew to New York, and then he was going to turn around and fly back to California. But instead of that, he himself got turned around, and he ended up flying, instead of all the way across the United States to California, he flew all the way across the ocean and ended up in Ireland. Now, his plane was not really airworthy after such a flight, and his license was also suspended after so many uh, violations for going so far outside of his plan. Uh, so he, he took the boat back. But news of this transatlantic flight had gone before him, and he was met with these, these congratulatory headlines and ticker tape parades in New York and also later in Chicago. This is only 11 years after Charles Lindbergh made the first historic transatlantic flight. So it's, it was a big deal. Even accidentally, it was still a big deal. Well. The beginning of a thing is extremely important. If you begin facing the wrong direction, you could end up half a world away. You know, wrong way Corrigan, he's famous for a mistake. He had some mechanical errors during his his flight, and if he actually needed to land and deal with them, well, he really wouldn't have been able to. There was no land for him to land on. And he's famous, at least famous enough that I can find him in a, in a you know, kind of a blog of nice trivial knowledge. He's famous because he made it. Uh, but had he not made it, 
he would have just been a name on a list of missing, missing persons. So today we're looking again at the Ten Commandments. This is the second giving of the law in Deuteronomy chapter 5. And we're looking at the first commandment. And the first commandment is the very beginning and the basis for all the commandments that come after. It's not only for the other nine, but also for the whole set of laws of the Jewish people. And not just the laws, but also the histories in the books of Samuel, the books of Kings, the books of Chronicles, and also the prophets' books. And really, the entirety of the Old Testament, from Exodus chapter 20, the first giving of the Ten Commandments, from Exodus 20 onwards, is based in a major way on the Ten Commandments. And the basis for the Ten Commandments, or the foundation, is commandment number one. You shall have no other gods before me. So, because it's foundational, it's crucial that we understand this commandment, or we won't be able to understand the foundation that the whole Old Testament is built on. And just like last time, back on New Year's Day, we looked at sort of an overview of the Ten Commandments before looking at it specifically one at a time. Just like last time, we're going to today look to the background of this commandment to help us understand the meaning of it. So our time today is going to be focused on, on those two things, the background of the commandment and the meaning of the commandment. So let's look first at the background. Well, when we initially looked at it, at the Ten Commandments about two months ago, the summary we used for the first commandment was this. Having no other gods before the Lord doesn't just mean that he takes first place. It also means that we don't have any other gods on the list. The word before in this command doesn't just mean in front of, but it means in the sight of. There are to be no other gods in God's sight. It's not a pantheon like Disney's Hercules. Other gods don't exist. No one is on the level of the Lord our God. So we mustn't put anything there. So what we see in this first commandment is that the relationship God has with his people is exclusive. And Joshua, who is the successor to Moses, Moses being the one who received the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai, Joshua, who follows after him, At the end of his life, after leading the people of Israel to conquer the promised land, Joshua reminds the people of this commandment when he says in Joshua 24, verses 14 and 15, Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. 
So when Abraham was in the land of Ur of the Chaldeans, that is, beyond the river, before the Lord had called him, he served other gods. And when Israel sojourned in Egypt, when they lived in Egypt for 400 years, they served gods in Egypt. And the Exodus, right before the giving of the law, the Exodus, when God brings his people out of Egypt, is in many ways a battle of those gods. On the one side, you have the gods of the Egyptians, and on the other side, standing against them, you have the Lord, God of the Hebrews. And we can see this battle played out in the plagues that the Lord sent to them. The first plague, the Nile is turned from water to blood. And the second plague, frogs are sent out to swarm over the land. And we're told right after each of those plagues in Exodus 7.22 and 8.7, so Moses has the, turned the water into blood, and then it says, the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. And then Moses causes the frogs to come up on the land, and it says, the magicians did the same by their secret arts. So the gods of Egypt seemed to be able to hold their own against the god of the Hebrews. Moses did a miracle. The magicians copied it. But by the third plague, the magicians, and of course this doesn't mean like a, you know somebody with a rabbit in a hat. This is like a sorcerer, uh, someone who has some sort of mystical power in one way or another. Right? That's, that's the meaning of the word magician here. So by the third plague, the magicians knew something was going on. In Exodus chapter 8, verses 16 through 19, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth, so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth, and there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magicians said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. Now, the Lord is not done at plague three, but the gods of Egypt are tapped out. They can turn water into blood, and they can make frogs appear, but gnats are way too difficult for them. There will be seven more plagues that culminate with the Passover, the death of the firstborn of Egypt. And when the Lord strikes down the firstborn sons of Egypt in that tenth plague. He's also striking down the gods of Egypt. In Exodus 12, 12, the Lord says as much to Moses. He says, For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. 
So the Lord executed judgments on all the gods of Egypt. So then, by the time that the people of Israel get to Mount Sinai, this has happened. The Passover, striking down the firstborn, executing judgments on the gods of Egypt, passing through the Red Sea, and at Mount Sinai, where the Ten Commandments are given by God to the people. By this time, it's not that difficult for them to hear and believe the first commandment. At least it shouldn't be. Sure, they lived in a society where they served other gods. But, now they have seen, with their own eyes, how the Lord their God has proven greater than all these other gods. So, when he says, you shall have no other gods before me, that would have made sense. And I want to give you one illustration um, to help us understand the words before me. You know, I already said it's not spatially, like just in front of. You know, you guys are before me because you're in front of me. But it's before me in, in an exclusive sense. There's an exclusivity to the relationship that God has with his people. And here's the image that I, the illustration that I want you to you think about. Now, many, many of you are married, and in your marriage vows, you promised yourself to your spouse in an exclusive way. You know, the way that this is sometimes communicated in the vows is by the phrase, forsaking all others, right? Husbands, you promised to have no other wife before your wife. Wives, you promised to have no other husband before your husband. And doesn't mean in front of, means none other at all. So God, in delivering this commandment to his people, is saying, take me to be your God, forsaking all others. And we see this exclusivity also in the preface, which is the verse right before this commandment, verse 6. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He says to them, I am the Lord your God. Not only is the Lord the only God, he's shown himself to be the only God by overthrowing the Egyptian gods. But he is also their God. The Hebrews, first and foremost, are not to think of the Lord as merely the God that they worship and serve. But first and foremost, they are to think of the Lord as their God. The Lord is their God, and the Lord is our God, to the exclusion of all other gods. And this exclusivity that is in this commandment is a very good thing. A wife has one husband to the exclusion of all others. And it's because the relationship is exclusive that she can say to him, my husband. And all that is good in that relationship belongs to her and does not belong to anyone else. And that is what's going on here. God says to his people, I am your God, 
So everything that that means is yours, which is why it's exclusive. So having looked at the background of the first commandment, let's look more deeply at its meaning. The meaning, then, of the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, is this. The Lord is the only God, and he is our God. And we have to acknowledge this truth and live according, accordingly. That's, that's the meaning of the commandment. The meaning is, is obedience. And it's not just obedience, but obedience from the heart. Every commandment requires us to be obedient from the heart. You know, all of us have been children. Some of us are still. And we know the difference between obedience in spite of our hearts and obedience from the heart. You know, your, your mother says, go clean your room. And you go and you clean your room, but it begins with, fine. Some of you are like, that, was, that fine wasn't long enough. I've heard longer. But obedience from the heart not only obeys, it obeys because it wants to obey. It obeys joyfully. And this commandment requires obedience from the heart even more than the nine others that come after it. You know, it's possible in a, in a sort of paltry way, in a half-hearted way, of course, to live in outward obedience to a lot of the commands that God gives. It's possible to look like we're obedient, but we're not really truly obedient. But this commandment is a command upon our hearts. Because there's no way to acknowledge God to be the only God and our God without doing it from the heart. Because doing that means giving God what he is due, our love, our worship, our faith. And those things only come from our hearts. And when I say heart, I mean from the very core of who we are, our desires, not just sort of ooey-gooey emotions, but that's included too. But the very core of who we are, of what we desire, of what we want. So this commandment requires obedience from the heart. Now, we could take this the wrong way. Because we could, we could hear this, we could hear this commandment, and we could despair. We could hear it and think, how in the world am I supposed to keep this commandment? If God requires me to be obedient to him from the heart, how, how can I do it? There's, there's no wiggle room there. You know, we, we must not just serve God, something that we may think we might be capable of, you know, we can, we can work ourselves up into some service to God. But we must love him from our hearts. And how can any one of us live up to it? You know, because every single time we sin, 
we place something before God. We take the exclusive relationship that God has established with us, and we commit adultery with something else. Whatever, whatever it is, I'd run out of breath listing what it might be. So, if there's no way that we sinners keep this, then how do we have anything but condemnation when we hear this commandment? You know, if God commands me to love him exclusively, to worship him in a way that I don't worship anything else, to have faith and trust in him above everything else that I want to trust in, and to do that every day, forever, without fail, then it seems hopeless. And if you only hear that from the commands of God, then you will fall into one of two ditches. You'll either fool yourself into thinking, okay, I have to keep this, and somehow I'm able to, and somehow I'm doing fine. And you'll be self-satisfied, self-righteous, Pharisee. Or you'll be forced to conclude that, okay, I have to keep this and there's no way I can, so I'm just not even going to bother following God or trying to keep his commandments. So if either of those two ditches sound like what, what you're falling into, if either of those two things, either I have to do it and I think I'm doing fine, or I can't do it and I'm not even going to bother, if either of those sound right to you, I have good news. And it is this, the Lord is the only God, and he is our God. It is this commandment. This commandment is good news. If you're thinking to yourself, how can I ever keep this law that God has commanded me? There's no way I can do it. There's, I just I don't have the ability to keep his commandments. Then you are understanding rightly one of the purposes of the law. Because one of the purposes of the law, of the commandments, is to make us despair of trusting to ourselves to stand right before God. Yes. Because he is our God, his commandments are for us. But they are for us, not as a way for us to purchase life. They are for us as a way to live. You can't purchase life or earn heaven or buy God's love by keeping these commandments. In fact, if that were the case, we wouldn't have the commandments in the first place. Because the commandments are gracious things to us. If we had to earn our way into God's favor, he wouldn't have bothered telling us the right way to live. So, the commandments are for those people to whom God says, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. The Lord is our God. He is for us, not against us. Believing that 
is the only way to keep the commandments. If you can say, the Lord is my God, he is for me, you will find the power of keeping the commandments. See, this commandment requires us to love God. And if we look honestly at ourselves, in light of this commandment, we will note how we don't measure up. We don't love God as we ought to love him, and we need to love him more. And if you look at yourself and try to find a way to make your love for him grow, you will only end back in that loop of despair in those two ditches of self-righteousness or just, all right, that's it, I'm done. But our love for God is not the beginning of the relationship. Our love for God is not the beginning of the relationship. Nowhere in all the Bible does it say that God loves us because we first loved him. The exact opposite is true. 1 John 4.19 We love because he first loved us. And two chapters after our passage that we're looking at, in Deuteronomy 7 now, Moses says this to the people, just right after he gives the commandments. He says this, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. It says, it is not because of you that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, but it was because the Lord loves you. Now that sounds really kind of circular. The Lord loves you because he loves you. The Lord saved you because he loves you. And he didn't love you because of you. He loved you because he decided to love you. A few minutes ago, we sang in one of the songs, you didn't want heaven without us. And that's true. But it's not because we're great. It's not because God would have missed us. It's because in some way that is glorious and hard to even hold in your, in your mind. In some way, God decided that he was going to love people who had no reason in themselves to be loved. And because the Lord is the only God and our God, He requires of us our love, our worship, and our faith. We must love God who who first loved us. We must worship God who saved us by his mighty power because he loves us. And we must trust God. We must trust that he loves us and that he saved us. Not because of us, but because of who he is, because he's the Lord our God and he has chosen to love us. 
So, on our way to a conclusion then. The first commandment of these ten teaches us where the power to keep all the commandments comes from. Because it's God who gave us his commandments, and it's God who gave us the power to keep them. The power to keep God's commandments comes from God. And we receive it by faith. That's what it means to have the Lord as our God. It means we believe in him, we have faith in him, we have faith that everything he has promised he will give us. And we trust him instead of ourselves for everything that we need, including the power and ability to keep the commandments that he gives to us. Now, the exodus from Egypt was just a picture of a greater exodus that would come after. In the exodus from Egypt, God brought his people out of the house of slavery under the Egyptian taskmasters. The Egyptians had enslaved the Hebrews, but by taking them out of Egypt, God made them slaves no more. He set them free, and he gave them the commandments, because that's how free people live. No longer enslaved to Egypt, they could freely serve God. Because real freedom is living how we ought to live. Now, the slavery that God's people experienced in Egypt is just that picture of all mankind's slavery to sin. The Egyptians were hard masters, but sin is the worst master of all. And earlier I quoted from the first letter of the Apostle John, the most famous thing he wrote comes from his gospel, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. The verse is so well known and quoted that it has become shorthand for the whole gospel message. And it deserves to be shorthand for the whole gospel message. But in making it shorthand, sometimes we miss everything that is included. Because if we think that all that Jesus did was save us from hell, save us from perishing, save us from God's wrath, then what are we supposed to do with the commandments? If, if all that Jesus' purpose was, was to just make sure that we don't have to pay for our disobedience, well then, great, we don't need the commandments, right? Wrong. He didn't come just to free us from the consequences of sin. He came to free us from sin. And fully and finally, at the cross, he took care of the consequences of sin. And at the cross, he purchased for us freedom from slavery to sin. We're no longer slaves to sin. So we can live as people who are free. The Apostle Paul captures this in Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. 
It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. Both things are included there. We were saved without any help from ourselves, not because of any commandment keeping. God saved us as a gift. And God saving us includes works that we are meant to walk in. Good works that God prepared beforehand. Both of these things. Both of these things come to us from God as gifts. And all of this we can see in the first commandment. The Lord is the only God, and he is our God. He is our God, which means he is for us. His commandments are for us. His promises are for us. In Jesus Christ, he is for us in flesh and blood, life and death and resurrection. He is for us. So when you face a commandment, we'll pick anyone. I'll take Paul's favorite, you shall not covet. And you look at your neighbor's things and, well, how do you, how do you keep from coveting? What do you do? Do you sit there and think, oh, yes, the Lord told me you shall not covet. So I'm just going to stop, stop it. Don't do it anymore. Like, you know, white knuckle it. No. You say to the Lord, God, you are my God. You've, you've said this. This is something you have said. You are my God, and you, because you're my God, every single thing that you promise is for me, because you are for me. And since you don't withhold any good thing from me, since you've saved me from all my sins, That includes saving me from this sin, this coveting that I really want to do. I want to do it, Lord, but you've saved me from that. And so, I'm asking you to give me the ability, trusting in you alone, to keep this commandment and to not covet. And that's just asking him to give you what he has already promised. We know that, you know, as Jesus says, doesn't the Father delight to give good things to those who are his? So, this exclusivity, you shall have no other gods before me. This exclusivity that God commands for his people, it's for our good. Because what that means is, don't go running to something else when you need, when what you need can only be found in God. And not only that, not only, you know, it's true that what we need is only found in God, but it's true that God is more willing to give it to us than we are willing to ask for it. And the exclusivity that he is Our God is shown in the first commandment and it also finds finds itself a picture of it, a greater picture of it in Jesus Christ. 
in our salvation, right? The words behind me, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's what Jesus said. And the Lord's Supper, which is laid out before us, you know, I don't plan it, but the first three sermons in this series, I get to have the Lord's Supper in front of me, and it's quite amazing. The Lord's Supper shows us, it's a picture, it's a visible word of Jesus saying, I am your Savior to the exclusion of all others. I am your God to the exclusion of all others. And when we take it, we're proclaiming that. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, On the night in which the Lord Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and broke it, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup, he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And then Paul says, So when we take the bread and we drink the cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. What we're proclaiming is that Jesus is our only Savior, our only God, and he is our Savior, and our God. And so, as we do, every time that we have communion, I want to let you know that if that is true of you, if you can say, God is my God and he is for me, Jesus is my Savior and he is for me, then the table, the bread and the juice is for you. Come and, and take it. Um, but if you can't say that, then, then don't. That's all right. I mean, we're not going to be looking out for who's not getting up. That's just let this time pass by. Uh, parents also with, with children, um, if they've made that profession of faith and can say with you, yes, Jesus is my Savior. Then, then yes, have them, have them come and join. Um, but if not, then use this as an opportunity to teach. Use this as an opportunity to, to help them understand what's going on and why it's important. So I'm going to pray, and then the worship team will come up and, and play, and it will, be, it will be laid out for you. Come forward, take and eat. Lord Jesus, you are the only Savior. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Only yours, none other. Help us, Lord, in this, the supper, to proclaim that and to be strengthened in that faith and to believe that you are for us, your promises are for us, your commandments are for us, everything you've done is done for our benefit because you have chosen to love us in spite of ourselves. So strengthen us 
with this truth to keep your commandments, to draw near to you, to come to you when we need strength for the keeping of your commandments, to draw near to you when we need forgiveness as we break your commandments. Lord, you are the Alpha and the Omega, and that means you are everything to us. We have no other. We have no other Savior. We have no other God. Help us to truly believe and live in the power of that word. It's in your name that we pray this. Amen.